Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. All right. Uh, I would venture to guess that very few of you, if any, have ever uttered the phrase, I want a jelly and peanut butter sandwich. You don't say that. It's weird. And you also probably don't often say, pass the pepper and salt. And then on Halloween, when kids knock on the door and you open it, you don't often hear treat or trick. For some reason, we as a society have decided that we say salt and pepper peanut butter and jelly, and trick or treat. I don't know why. It's not like it's alphabetical. It doesn't make any real sense other than the fact that that's just how we say it. Those are just the way we say things. And when you say it the other way, it's weird. And frankly, a little bit annoying. And so today, we have started a mini-series. We're taking a break from Leviticus, and that mini-series is called Found and Lost. It's supposed to say lost and found, and I know that. We did it on purpose. It's not a mistake. We would not make Stephanie go to all the work of creating this beautiful image just because we forgot the way it's supposed to be said. We're saying it for this reason, two reasons, actually. Number one, we're talking about a story of Elijah, the first story we see of this great prophet in 1 Kings 18, and then we're going to talk about another story of his in 19 next week. And in this first week, Elijah is going to find something. He's going to help Israel find something that they'd lost. And then next week, he's going to lose something. Found and lost. Found and lost. Also, I wanted you, we wanted you to hear that phrase and be a little confused, maybe a little curious. Why are they calling it that? Why is he, why is it, why does it sound so weird? Today we're going to read this story. Maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you haven't. And my goal is that we hear this story and though we may have heard it before, it's going to ring a little different. Something about it's going to feel new. That's the goal. So found and lost. Many years ago, I found myself on a mountain in, uh, I think it was Italy. I mean, we went skiing. I lived in Italy when I was in middle school and a little bit of high school because my uh, father was in the Air Force. So we moved all over the place. And feel free to feel jealousy deep down inside your heart because, yes, I lived in northeast Italy in the shadow of the Alps for about three years. And it was glorious. It was amazing. And I'm sorry if you didn't get to experience that. I did. And it was great. And we lived in the shadow of the Alps. We got to go up the mountains all the time. And then one time we went to this new mountain. I don't know what it was or why, but we took some friends. And it was beautiful. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a mountaintop in the winter and it's skiing and there's, it's covered in snow. But there's just something different up there. The air feels cleaner. It's cold, so you're always kind of like tingly and on edge a little bit. And everything just looks so pristine as if no human had ever even seen it before. And it's just so rich and, and wonderful to see the world like that. It gives you some sort of new perspective, I think. And, and you know, it's, it's visuals that are just stuck in my mind that I'll never forget. That mountaintop on that day is so memorable meat to me for two reasons. One, because of what happened at the top of the mountain, and two, because of what happened when we came down. And today, we're just going to stay on top of the mountain. Today, we're on the mountaintop. Next week, 
we're going to come down. But here we are. It's 1 Kings. Ahab is the king in Israel. Let me give you some context. The kingdom is divided. After Solomon, the kingdom split into two. We got Judah, and then we got the rest of Israel in the kingdom called Israel. Their capital is Samaria because Ahab's father, Omri, decided to make it there. Now, Ahab's father reigned for 12 years, and it was described of him as the king who did more evil than all who were before him. This is Ahab's father. That's how it is, he is described. That's how he is remembered as a king of Israel. That's, if he had a tombstone, that's what would be on it. I'm assuming that most of you, that is not your goal. To get to the end of your life and have people say about you at your funeral, Omri is dead. He did more evil than anybody else. Nobody's shooting for that mark. Then Ahab di- Omri dies and Ahab, his son, takes over. And it is said of Ahab at the end of his reign that Ahab did more evil than all who were before him. He beat his dad. He was worse than him. In fact, it's even, he's given a little bit extra. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of God than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Perhaps Ahab's biggest error, as was his ancestor Solomon, was in who he married. He married a woman named Jezebel from the country of Sidon, and she brought with her, with her 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah and brought them into Israel. In fact, they built a a huge, meant to rival the temple in Jerusalem, um, temple to Baal, called the House of Baal. And in that, an enormous altar. This was their legacy. This is what they brought to God's kingdom. It was a house built for other gods. In 1 Kings 17, we are introduced to somebody else. His name is Elijah. Elijah is a little bit different from Ahab. Now, unlike a lot of prophets, this is the first we see of him. The very first thing we see of him is not how he is called into ministry. We don't see him in in adolescence. All we see is this fully grown, fully formed, bold prophet who stands in front of a king who has built a temple to other gods, knowing full well that Elijah is a man of God, knowing full well that his wife Jezebel has sought out and killed every man of God, every prophet that she could find, everybody who claimed ownership to the kingdom of God, everybody that she could find, she got rid of them knowing full well that this is dangerous, he steps in front of Ahab. And he goes to Ahab and he says to him, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. No more water for you. Not just rain. I like this because it's it's not just, it's going to stop raining. You know that cute little, those little water beads that form on the leaves in the morning, Ahab? You know those things? We're done with that too. No more of that. You can go out and look at all the leaves you want. They're going to be dry as a bone. Except by my word. This is a different kind of man. We don't know a lot about what happens before in this moment with Elijah, but we do know stuff that happens beyond this moment. We know that Elijah is part of a very elite group of humans, two that we know of, that never officially died. Enoch was the first. He was the great-grandfather of Noah. And then Elijah, all we know is that he was taken up by God in a chariot of fire. We do, that's, that's it. Two men in history that we know of never died, and Elijah is one of them. A chair is left open for Elijah at Jewish circumcision ceremonies. A chair and a cup of wine are left open for Elijah at Passover Seder dinners. During the dinner, they open the door and they invite Elijah in to come and herald the coming Messiah. 
In Malachi 4, it's, it's prophesied about Elijah. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is what Malachi said of Elijah. And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, an angel is speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, about his son. And says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prophecy fulfilled. And then Elijah joins Moses in the transfigured Jesus in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Revelation 11, this is more theory than fact. In Revelation 11, uh, it's predicted that two witnesses will be granted authority and prophecy for 1,260 days during the end times. Many believe that that will be Elijah and either Enoch or Moses, and others believe it will be nobody we've ever heard of. But over and over again, Elijah keeps popping back up. He keeps popping back up. This is a man of great importance. And this is the first thing that we see of him. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, no more rain, no more water. And then he leaves. And God tells him to go and hide because, of course, now his life is in greater danger than it even was before. God says, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So for a while, Elijah goes and hides himself at a little riverbank. He drinks from the river, and ravens come and give him bread during the day, and then bring him meat at night. And that's how he lives. But then eventually, because there's no water and no dew, that brook dries up. And God tells him to go to the country of Sidon, to a place called Zarephath. And there you'll find a widow outside the gates. Stay with her. This is all the information he gives him. Go to the city. You'll find a widow outside. Stay with her. So Elijah goes. He sees this widow. He says, oh, great. You're here. Could you go home and make me some cakes? And I'll I'll be there in a minute. And she's like, sir, I'm about to run out of flour. This is the end for us. You see these jars? This is the last I have. We're going to eat this, and then that's probably it. And Elijah says, no, you'll be fine. Uh, That flour and that jar, they're going to last forever. So everything's fine. And he was right. They did. I like this part of the story because God doesn't say, go to the gates of Zarephath, and you'll find a widow there, and you'll have flour and, and oil that will last forever. He just says, go and find this woman. Elijah takes it upon himself to decide that this oil and this flour are just going to continue forever. And he was right. So he lives with this woman and her son. Her son at one point dies and Elijah brings him back to life. That's a very nice house guest. (laughs) That's like the least he could do, I suppose. And so for three years, this is how it goes. He's hiding at the brook and he's living with this woman. And these three years, Ahab and Jezebel are actively seeking him out probably because they believe in the old magic that if you destroy the one who cursed you, then everything goes back to normal. Those are my favorite parts of the movies, right? Where the, the, the wizard casts an evil spell and then the good guy destroys the wizard and then all of a sudden all the magic is undone and rainbows flow out of their faces and everything's perfect. I think that may be what Ahab and Jezebel thought if they got rid of Elijah, but they're wrong. And so, at the end of these three years, God comes to, Ahab, or God comes to Elijah and says, all right, now, This is all the instruction he gives. Make sure you understand this. This is it. This is all he tells him. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. All the instruction he gives. 
Now, we're taking a break from Leviticus, and we're going to come back to it after these two weeks. But in the middle of this, this, these chapters in Leviticus, I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to walk through a narrative. A narrative that I think is so relevant to stuff that we deal with on a daily basis. One that's, that's going to encourage us and lift us up. So here is our story for the day. The famine was obviously quite severe in this land. So severe that Ahab himself, the king, and his manservant Obadiah, who was secretly a man of God, decides, hey, we need to go out and find something. Our horses are dying. Our cattle aren't going to make it. The people of Israel are suffering. We need to do something. So Ahab gets on his horse and he says, I'm going east. And Obadiah says, I'm going west. And we're going to find whatever we can find and report back. And so they go. And Obadiah, not far after he leaves, runs into a man. Maybe he met him before. Maybe he could just tell by his presence. We don't know. But he knows that it's Elijah. And Elijah's on the road coming toward him. And Elijah says, Obadiah, stop. And Obadiah gets off his horse and bows down to him. And Elijah's like, all right, that's enough. Get up. Look, I need you to go find Ahab. Go find him. Tell him I want to talk to him. Now, Ahab is understandably, or Obadiah is understandably skeptical at this point. Elijah seems to have a reputation for sort of just uh, disappearing, for being one of those guys that God just sort of picks up and moves other places. And so Obadiah says, look, Elijah, this is a great idea, but here's the problem. I'm afraid that if I go tell this man that's actively trying to kill you that I found you and then you're not here, that I might be the one that's killed. And Elijah's like, look, I get it. I know I've done this in the past, but here's the deal. I'm not going anywhere. I promise. I swear by the Lord of hosts that I will be here. Go and get him. Tell him to meet me here. So Obadiah goes. And he comes back. And here comes Ahab. He confronts Elijah. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been falsely accused of something. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience or the feeling of being told that you are something that you are most certainly not. In fact, calling you something that you are so confident you are the complete opposite of that it just wounds you. But in this moment, Ahab is about to say something to Elijah that I cannot imagine did not wound him, especially coming from the man that says it. This is what Ahab says to Elijah. It is you, you troubler of Israel. Coming from a man that has built a temple to the bales of other countries, that has allowed his wife to bring 850 prophets regularly into the palace to eat with her and be praised and use all of their worship in those many ways that has completely detached Israel from their God. This man dares to call Elijah the last remaining prophet, the troubler of Israel. I think in this moment, and I think this because Elijah was a human being, I think in this moment something just clicked on in Elijah that said, do you really want to do this with me? Do you really want to go toe-to-toe with me and call me the troubler of Israel? And so Elijah responds. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And here comes the challenge. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me 
at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah says, go and get them and meet me at that mountain. And I don't know if Ahab felt the authority in his voice or I don't know if Ahab thought, hey, maybe this is a great opportunity to get rid of Elijah in front of all of Israel. Either way, Ahab goes and he sends the messengers. He gathers the prophets and they meet at the foot of Mount Carmel and ascend it. A little bit about this mountain. On whichever side you may ascend this mountain, the scene is one of unsurpassed beauty. The rich red soil were not cultivated is covered by a thick brushwood of luxurious evergreen brushes. And not only are there flowering trees, but delicious fragrant herbs. The smells would have been delightful. And all the flora of the north of Palestine seems to be gathered in this favored spot. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. There's a certain plateau where at the edge of a steep slope, there's a perennial well filled with water, even in the driest season. And in this area where they met, there were two altars, one to Baal and an ancient one to God, to Jehovah, before the temple was built. From where they stood, it would have been quite a view. You could see so many areas that had already been important in the history of Israel and would continue to be. You would see the hills around Caesarea to the hills of Galilee. You could see Lebanon and Hermon, the beautiful Jezreel Valley just below. Endor, Nain, Tabor, Nazareth, and even Gilead on a clear day could all be seen from this spot, not to mention the sea. Be quiet. Be quiet. Watch. She has a mind of her own. And not even to mention the sea to their west. On this pristine mountain, full of this beauty, of this natural world, in view of the assembly of Israel, Elijah speaks to these people. Now remember, there have been seven kings in Israel. Fifty years have gone by. Not since Solomon reigned over a united kingdom, there has not been a king that followed the commands of the Lord. Israel itself has been rebellious since this time. They have not kept his commands. They have not followed the, 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 the tradition of the feasts and the festivals or their, their many traditions. They've left them behind and there has not been a leader who has feared the Lord in all this time. And many in the group that were there have probably never even known a country of Israel that followed the Lord. And for the first time in 50 years, as far as we know, this is the first prophet to speak to them. And this is what Elijah says. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And I love this response. And the people did not answer him a word. They're like, go ahead. And so he does. I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And here's the challenge. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them Choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. 
The challenge has been laid down. Today, on this day, on the mountain, in front of the congregation of Israel, who has been straying from the Lord who brought them into the very land that they inhabit, they're going to find out if this Baal thing is real or if the God of their forefathers is real. Today, there will be definitive proof either way. So the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them as we know, they wore typically very long white flowing robes and white pointy hats. They would have been very obvious who they were. They stuck out everywhere they went. And Elijah gives them every advantage in this, in this competition. He lets them have their own altar. They get to pick the bull. They get to go first. Their god, Baal Hadad, was the storm and rain god, which meant he would have easy access to lightning to burn up a sacrifice like this. There's 450 of them in one Elijah. Every advantage was given to them. And from morning to noon, these prophets call out. Hours and hours go by. They're calling, they're dancing, they're performing all sorts of rituals. And there's lots of them, remember. Think of 450 men all shouting and yelling and chanting and doing all the things that they're doing to try and call out and coax out this God that they apparently firmly believe in. Right around lunchtime, Elijah's having a little snack. He's kicked back, he's watching, and he decides to troll the prophets. And he starts to make fun of them. He starts to poke them a little bit. He says, be louder. He's a God, he's far away. Maybe he's out thinking. Maybe he's maybe just somewhere reading. It says either he's musing, and this is my favorite one, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's just off on the bathroom somewhere, you know, just give him a minute. He'll be there in a minute. Or maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be woke up. He is just poking them and poking them, making fun of them in front of everybody. Then they get serious. And for the next few hours, they go even more crazy. They're whipped up into a frenzy. They're cutting themselves. They're bleeding all over the place. They're forming all other sorts of rituals, doing anything they can think to do to coax out this God for which 450 of them have shown up and devoted their life's work to, for which they built a house in the capital of Israel, for which they have altars, for which they have done everything they can to appease this God. They're begging and begging and begging and begging for him to show up and nothing happens. I'm left imagining what was going on behind the veil on this day. When you think about spiritual warfare and moments where the enemy could, very, could create a very decisive victory for himself, this seems to be one of those moments. How hard would it have been for the enemy to start a fire? How hard would it have been for those spiritual forces that actively work against God and his people to just get a little spark going? It seems that in this moment, God saw the great importance of this moment and defended and protected that altar and stopped anything from being tampered with. And nothing happens. The altar is left with no fire, a dead bull sitting on top, and nothing had happened. And the prophets of Baal are worn out and they quit. Then Elijah, he says to the people, he says, come near to me. And Elijah gathers the remaining pieces of this altar and puts it back together. This altar that was once built there for the Lord their God to offer sacrifices in the evening and in the morning. He gathers 12 stones. Though Israel is only 10 of those 12 tribes of Israel, he gathers all 12, places them around the altar. 
Then he grabs a shovel, or maybe he just uses his hands. We don't know, but he digs a trench around the altar. Nobody knows why. This is not part of their ritual. This is not part of how they worship. There's no trench chapter in Leviticus. But Elijah builds a trench. And then he takes the bull and he places it on the wood. And then he tells some people, go to that well over there and draw up four jugs of water and drench this thing completely. Do it three times. And they drench this altar to the point that the trench that he built around it becomes full of water. So here we have this altar rebuilt, an incredibly wet pile of wood, rocks and bull sitting on it. And then it gets quiet. And these people that agreed to this agreement, that agreed to this challenge, sit and watch. And what they had just witnessed was a group of men, 450 of them, losing their minds, cutting themselves, jumping around, dancing, screaming, chanting, performing any manner of ritual they can think of to beg and coax their God to come out. Compare that now, as these men and women did, with what Elijah is going to do. He draws near to the altar, and he prays, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am just your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, if you would, imagine with me that you're there. You're sitting at the base of this beautiful mountain. It's nearing the end of the day, it's twilight, it's quiet, there's a soft breeze blowing. You can still hear the panting and frustrated sounds of the prophets of Baal as they themselves can't help but watch. You see a king who is actively opposing everything that God does, watching quietly. Nobody speaks. Nobody whispers. And then all of a sudden, a fire falls from heaven and destroys this altar. Just as fire fell in the presence of Israel in Leviticus 9 to consecrate the first sacrifice in the tabernacle, just as when Solomon consecrated the temple and fire inhabited it, just as when God first introduced himself to Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai as fire in a bush, as he has done in several other holy moments, God brings fire down where there should be no fire and his presence is known. It says, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. This fire does not just come and start a fire. It comes and takes everything out with it. I've never seen a fire take stones and turn them into dust like that. I've never seen fire lick up water out of a trench, but this fire that fell from heaven consumed everything that Elijah laid before it. Nothing was left. Not a trace. But that smell of fire in the air and a a look of amazement on the faces of everybody there from Ahab to the lowliest servant. Everybody knew what had just happened. And it says, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
And then they finished the job. In Deuteronomy 13, it's very clear on what, there is, what it is to be done to those that draw the people of Israel away from their God. For those that would try and bring other gods and bring idols into the kingdom of God and say, follow these instead, Deuteronomy is clear on what to do with them and it is to kill them with the sword. And so Elijah quickly says, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they, the people who were gathered, seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the river Kishon and slaughtered them there. All 450 prophets of Baal died on that day. The host of those whose job it was to draw the people of Israel away from their God were now put to destruction. And as it says, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. Then Elijah looks up to Ahab. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, Ahab, maybe you should go have a snack. I hear the sound of rushing rain. And so Elijah climbs to the top of Mount Carmel and waits for the rain with his head between his knees, periodically asking his servant to go out and look onto the coast, look for rain, for that's where it comes from. And on the seventh time that he sent him, he comes back and says, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Without even checking himself, Ahab, or Elijah goes to Ahab and says, prepare your chariot. You need to head home because you might not make it back. It's about to get real muddy on the way. And Ahab has no response other than to get on his chariot and leave. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds of wind, and there was a great rain. What a day of victory. On this day, God spoke in a big and powerful way. And he proved once again to his people that he is supreme over all things, that God is bigger and better than all things. And that is the message that we get to leave this church with today, that whatever you are going through, God is so much bigger, that his name is above all these things that drag us down, that his power and his love for us is far surpassing all those things that would have our allegiance, that would have our attention. God is bigger, better, stronger, all the things that we need, all the things that we should have. He is bigger. He is for us. And who in the world can be against us? Put your trust in the God who brought this fire down on Mount Carmel 2,900 years ago. The same God who brought his people out of Egypt. The same God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. The same God who set aside his divine right, lowered himself to suffer and die on a cross, be raised again and free us from the bonds of sin and death. This is the same mighty God. What better God is there to put your trust in? Who has done more for you? Church, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let me pray. God, you are strong, mighty, wonderful, beautiful, mysterious, all the things. And God, we worship you this day. We on the mountaintop of God look out and say, there you are. 
You are here for us. You are with us. You love us. You provide for us. You care for us. You tend to us. You are our God. We are your people. You are the shepherd. We are your sheep. You are the master. We are your servant. We are everything, and you are all things for us. God, we love you. We need you. Be with us as we continue to worship you in this place. God, fall on us in a way that we have not yet prepared ourselves for. Strengthen us, encourage us, draw us up to the top of this mountain with you that when we leave this place, we might go out encouraged, bold, strong, knowing that we do not walk out alone, but rather we walk out with a God like you, a God that brings fire where there should be no fire, a God that answers when we call, a God that loves us in a way that we can't even fathom. Let us walk out of this place today with that level of boldness. We ask this thing in your name.